Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series called The Psalms of Refuge, a 10-message series. And today we'll begin with Psalm chapter 3 with a message entitled, Confidence in the Morning. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to be covering a series of psalms, and I'm simply going to follow them through as you find them in the Psalter. I'll start with Psalm 3, and then each day we'll simply go to the next Psalm 4, 5, and so on. Now, if you've opened your Bible, you'll find 150 of them, and if you're paying close attention, you might also notice that they are divided into five books. You know, first is book one, it's Psalm 1 to 41, then book two, Psalm 42 to 72, book three is Psalm 73 to 89, book four is Psalm 90 to 106, and then finally book five, that's Psalm 107 to 150. There have been all manner of theories as to how those 150 psalms or 150 pieces of poetry or poems that were meant to be put to music and sung in the worship experience of Israel, how it is that they were gathered into the hymn book called the Psalms, or for that matter, how they came to be put into the five separate sections or books. And my understanding is as follows. Book 1, Psalms 1 to 41, are songs of worship in which David is named as the author of all of them, with the exception of 1 and 2 and Psalm 10. Therefore, seems reasonable to me that they were compiled into a book by David himself. And then books two and three are psalms of national interest, and they may have been compiled or organized or been put into two additional books by King Hezekiah or King Josiah, and you know perhaps each one had a hand in them, maybe Hezekiah in book two and Josiah in book three. Then we come to books four and five, which are anthems of praise, And they were compiled by either Ezra or Nehemiah near the end of the writing of the Old Testament. And what I mean to say is that not all of these psalms were written at, you know, those periods of time, but rather that they were put together at those periods of time. Essentially, they took the songbook or the hymnal of Israel and they expanded it at important times. And that brings me back to Psalms 1 to 41, book 1, put together by David. They're songs of worship. Psalm 1 is the song of the importance of the law of the Lord in the life of the faithful believer. Psalm 2 is a celebration of the promise of the ultimate victory of the Messiah when he arrives. And then today, we'll study Psalm 3 and we'll find, you know, what might be called a morning hymn. You have to imagine the people of God gathered for worship and it's morning. What praise should they sing to God as the new day arrives? So here's Psalm 3, which is a celebration that you can have confidence in God on each day, no matter what evil has gone on before, or regardless of the forces of opposition that await you on that day. And you get up in the morning, and the first thing you should express is confidence in God. See, you should worship God because of who he is and because of the covenant that you have with him. So let's stop here, shall we? Do you find it true that there are days when you lie down to sleep and you can't sleep? Your mind is racing because of the troubles that you face, and perhaps evil men are rising up against you, and it steals your joy, and you find your stress rising, and your heart is pounding. Morning finally arrives, and you feel you're afraid to face the day. Psalm 3 is written to teach you how to start a day. And having said that, let's look at the words of explanation that are written before the psalm begins. 
It's a title in this psalm, and it indicates who wrote it and also under what circumstances it was written. So the title reads, A Psalm of David When He Fled from Absalom His Son. Now that explains the context. You can read about that event in 2 Samuel 15-16, to and there we learn that over a period of four years, Absalom, through deceit and lies, stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And when the time was right, Absalom, the son of David, sent messengers throughout Israel and gained enough military leaders to oust David from his office. David then realized that the only hope he had was to flee from his own capital city of Jerusalem and go into hiding. And as David and his men left the city of Jerusalem, they walked down the steep embankment into the Kidron Valley, then up the other side to the Mount of Olives, and the scripture tells us he was weeping as he went. And with that little note of background, our psalm begins. Now, I'll read this psalm in three sections. Section 1, that's verses 1 to 2, and explains what David is experiencing. And section 2, this is verses 3 to 6, that explains David's faith. And then section 3, and that's verses 7 and 8, that's David's prayer. So let's start the first section, an expression of the pressure that David felt as it seemed to him like his life was unraveling. So I'm reading Psalm 3, 1 to 2. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Now, in just a little while, I'll explain why I think this is a morning prayer or a morning hymn. But imagine for a moment David getting up. He's fled Jerusalem, and now, rather than sitting on the throne of the kingdom, he's on the run. The morning arrives, and David is reminded of his grief. And there are three times in those two verses where there's a description of many. You know, first, how many are my foes? His enemies and those who think he should no longer be king, they're now a great company. David is overwhelmed because he now realizes that those who want to get rid of him are much larger than he had anticipated. Second, he says, many are rising against me. That is, not only are the people who don't want him many, but those who are willing to do something about it, that is, to take up the sword and lead the nation into a civil war, they're many as well, and that's alarming. And the third use of many should really catch our attention. Many are saying of his soul, there's no hope for him in God. Another way of translating that is to say, they say to me, there is no salvation for you in God. And there would have been a reason for that. It was David's own sin, his adultery, and then his act of murder that precipitated this disaster. You might remember Psalm 51 covers that. See, there the king openly confesses his sins, and there he hides nothing. The nation is going to know that their king has sinned, and there he goes to God crying out for mercy. See, while David was open about his sin, the truth is that the result of his sin led to a terrible effect in his family. And furthermore, there were military men who must have felt deeply betrayed by David. And in the end, many, David doesn't say how many, but many said, God will not rise up and defend David. God is now remembering his sins, and he's brought them upon his head. And it's with these thoughts that David begins his day. And we need to stop and consider that. See, you might remember that the book of Job presents Satan standing before God, and he's bringing accusation against Job. Or we might also remember Revelation 12, verse 10, which calls Satan the accuser of the brothers. And the accusation goes like this. 
What with his sins? How can this man be considered worthy of the office of the king of Israel? Let's do away with him. God will never side with such a sinner. See, let's take that matter into our own lives, shall we? If you're at all sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you'll be aware that you have enough sins that disqualify you from everything. See, I love a prayer of confession that goes as follows. It says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We follow too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against your holy laws. We've left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we've done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. See, the more we become aware of our own sin, the more oppressed we may become. And others who are aware of our sins will say, he has no help in God. God will never bless him. Now, David is about to pray about this, but before he does, he does something that we all should learn from. He confesses what he knows to be true. And here we come to the second section of Psalm 3, where David confesses the truth of God. And we're going to notice that he expresses two things. First, he confesses that he knows that God has not abandoned him at all. Let's read verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. That's profound. 2 Samuel 15.30 tells us about David fleeing from Jerusalem. The passage says he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. So here's what happens when a person is defeated and in mourning. The head drops. It's a sign of discouragement, perhaps disappointment at how things have turned out. It's a sign of defeat. And so says David, my head was bowed down in defeat, but you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. That is, God took my bowed head and he lifted it up. And in that moment of discouragement and failure, it all passed. No longer a defeated man, God lifted my head. And when God lifts our head, we're no longer the victim or the man or woman who's too discouraged to carry on. Indeed, the lifted head. See, that's a sign that we're defeated no longer. But we're looking forward to waging the battle in strength. And David said, that happened because God lifted my head. Momentum is picking up as friends from across the country sign up for the 2022 Israel Experience. Join us from April 24th through May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, David walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's Royal Palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, and join in communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last Israel experience said, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful. The trip of a lifetime. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, numbers are limited. So register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.
David declares that God did three things for him. The first is that God was a shield about him. You know, the shield of an ancient warrior was vital. You know, as the battle began, the arrows of the archers would rain down upon them, but the shield was designed for protection. David says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me or a shield that protects me on every side. Second, he says, you're my glory. Now, the statement might mean that David glories in God, but the context tells me that's not what he has in mind. David is talking about what God does for him. And so when he says that God is his glory, he means God's the source of his glory. And that's very important. David remembers that whatever glory he may have had, his glory as king or his fame among the nations, so forth, whatever he had enjoyed as an advantage in the past, all of that came from God. You know, it's in 2 Samuel 7 where David recognizes that God has appointed him as king and that his kingdom is a forerunner to the kingdom of the Messiah. It was God's purpose in his life. And if God had made promises to David, well then, how would those promises fail? Not his sins, not his enemies. Nothing could discount the promises of God. And that's why David would also say that God had lifted up his head. And then look again at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. You know, the holy hill David has in mind is the hill above his palace that, that later became known as the Temple Mount. In David's time, that was where the tabernacle of the Lord was. And more so, that's where the Holy of Holies was. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, God's dwelling among his people. In short, David is saying, I know God's still among us. And then he adds, I also know that God has answered me from his holy hill. And for New Testament believers, this line is especially poignant. We know that today the Temple Mount is no more, but we also know that it's been replaced by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So for us, the Holy Hill is the cross of our Lord where his blood was spilled out for our sins. Do you remember when I read, you know, a part of the prayer of confession? Well, I didn't read it all. And that prayer is a prayer that acknowledges our sin before God. And as believers, we're not permitted to hide our sins. We're called upon to confess them. But then the prayer goes on to say, Restore all that are penitent according to your promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what are those promises? Well, for one, we have 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, that's the promise of the cross of Christ. He calls us from the holy hill of Calvary and lets us know that his blood absolves all who repent of their sins. And it may be that as David has experienced it, that many are saying he has no hope of salvation from God because his sins are many, but the holy hill of Calvary reminds us that even it's true that our sins are many. The ever true word of God also promises us that God provides mercy for undeserving sinners. God answers, and he's a shield around those who confess their sins. See, let God be true, and the many who speak against David, let them be counted as liars. And so that's what David believes to be true. And because of that belief, David also has one more thing to add. Look now at verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. You remember as we began the study, I had said that Psalm 3 is a song for the morning. It's a song of the man of God who in the morning can say that even if my troubles are so great that I don't know if I'm going to live or die, 
or if my enemies are able to steal my voice and drive me from the throne itself. And yet, in the midst of my enemies, I lie down and sleep. And when I awake, I'll know that God has kept me. I face the morning not with dread or with fear of what is likely to occur, but with the knowledge that God is watching over me. I am his, and my life is in his hands. And out of that, before he goes into his morning prayer, David says, I'm not afraid of the thousands who've set themselves against me. Now, just to be clear, that word translated as thousands, well, it's actually a word that can also be translated as myriads. You know, I make mention of that so that we shouldn't think that David has a rough handle on exactly how large is the opposition. His choice of words takes us back to the three uses of the word many in verses 1 and 2. See, David is saying, I have no idea how many people seek to depose me, but I do know they're a very large group. And to all those people, I will say, I'm not afraid. I know what God has said to me in his covenant, and I'll rely on the promises of God. Now, twice now in this psalm, we have seen the use of the word selah. There's a great deal of discussion among Bible scholars as to what that notation actually means. You know, most scholars agree that it's some form of a musical notation. It may speak of a crescendo in the music, or it might even signal as to how it was to be played in worship. But even though the meaning is unclear, most also agree it speaks of some sort of a pause. Either the singer or the person reading this poem to the congregation should be instructed to slow the reading down right here and to leave a moment of either silence or some form of musical bridge before one goes on to the next section, and that's interesting. See, the pause also gives the person listening or singing that moment to reflect on what has just been said. In the first sila, we saw that it came about because people were saying of David, there's no salvation for him in God. God won't defend him. His sins are too many. Think about that, says David. People thought I was driven from Jerusalem because of my sin. Think about what I felt when I cried out to God. Now, the second is found in verse 4. I cried to the Lord from the place where his glory dwelt, and he answered me. Think about that. The many were saying one thing, but God was saying the exact opposite. And then having described both his experience of rejection by a great company of people, and then having expressed his faith in what God has said, it is then and only then that David's ready for prayer. And that also requires a moment of reflection. See, how many times when we're in trouble do we cry out to God and say, Help! I've come to the point of crisis. And here's the funny thing about prayer. It sometimes is uttered in a state of unbelief. God, why aren't you helping me? And we all express this desperation. But David has been reviewing his faith, as should we. Pray not out of a state of paralyzed fear, but out of the sure promises that we know to be true. And so in verses 7 to 8 is the prayer of a man who's not desperate, but a man who truly believes. So let's read the text. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. You know, some believers have difficulty with the last part of this prayer. You know, it's a prayer that God should break the teeth of those who oppose David. And when we read this, we do well to remember that we need to think of David not just as an individual man, but rather the man chosen by God through whom the Messiah would enter into the world. 
You see, when men wanted to depose David from his throne, what was really at play was that they were trying to stop the coming of the Messiah entering into the world. See, let's not have a messianic kingdom, they said. Let's not have God rule over us. Let's have our own kingdom that fits our own desires. So if you read Psalm 3 in that light, everything changes. Now, we're not to pray that God always breaks the teeth of all of our enemies. Rather, we are to pray that God breaks the teeth of all who are the enemies of the Messiah and the enemies of his everlasting kingdom. We're to pray, God, destroy every kingdom that is raised up against you and your plan to save a great company of men and women. See, that kind of praying puts us on solid ground. I mean, after all, David was not praying that his will to rule Israel should triumph over his son's will to rule over Israel. Rather, he was praying by seeing himself within God's covenant. He was the man in submission to the revealed will of God. Jesus told us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. He didn't mean that our will should triumph or that our righteous cause should triumph, but rather that God's righteousness should triumph. And that kind of praying makes a difference, don't you see? That's why David ends this psalm with this confident note of triumph. Salvation, he says, belongs to the Lord, not to the strength of a man. And that's the reason the man or woman of God can wake in the morning and sing and praise Psalm 3, because having found ourselves in the will of God, we stake our future on the promises God has made. One day Christ will return, and all things will be brought in submission to him. And for this reason, we start the day by asking God to defend us from everything that brings us into evil, and to defend us of all that causes us to deny our faith. And then armed with the promises of God, and of the prayer that has been prayed in his will, we enter into the day in confidence. The Lord will surely bless us this day. Thanks so much for your message, John. Let me ask you, how should we understand prayer? What should we expect to achieve through prayer? Well, we know that um, God sometimes withholds from us the answers we so desperately need. Uh, He wants us to feel a sense of dependence on him. And so uh, many times he waits for us to plead with him in prayer. We get on our knees, and when we do so, God is pleased by our humble spirit, and he acts on our behalf. This is a wonderful learning thing. So uh, we need to remember this when we pray. God is waiting for us, and he invites us to come. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The days we have are precious, and how we use our days matter. Dr. John helps us to consider how we spend our time in ways that matter for eternity in his series, The Time of Your Life. Why is time so important? Well, it's a scarce commodity. It's uncertain how many days we have. Time can never be recovered, and our use of time can introduce either light or darkness. Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus is so true for us today. We should be a church longing to live as those who are wise, making the very best use of our time. This is a high calling, but a worthy calling. 
this month, request Dr. Neufeld's series, The Time of Your Life, on CD as our free gift to you. And to support Bible teaching with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.